start today's episode of the Fireside Chat, a little story. On January 24th, 2012, I had dinner in a restaurant called the MB Post in Manhattan Beach, California with one of my oldest and best friends. It was an amazing experience. The food was great. The decor was great. It was just one of those experiences that imparted a memory. And I took the menu, as I often do in restaurants that I love, regardless of where I am around the world. Little did I know that eight and a half years later, I would be doing this episode with architect Stephen F. Jones. Amazing coincidence, he was the lead architect and designer of the space that I absolutely loved eight years earlier. Also, all of his experience living in Colombia, traveling through Europe, and then becoming the in-house architect for the Wolfgang Puck Food Company. I hope you enjoy today's episode and learning the vision from Stephen F. Jones and everything he has done to help make restaurants and spaces part of our daily lives and part of what we live to celebrate. Enjoy. Really nice to meet you. I've been following your work for, uh, for a while and I'm excited about uh, speaking with you. Well, thank you. I'm glad you asked me. <laughs> you know, it's been kind of, uh, you know, working out of the house, as you know, has been uh, quite lonely. <laughs> so it's nice to be able to uh, interact with other people. I, I, am, I am sure. I have no doubt it's, uh, it's tough. I, I read in, uh, in a bit of my research before, um, before today, if I'm not mistaken, your wife is an urban planner. Is that, is that right? By, uh, has an urban planning firm? Yeah, she has, uh, she has her own firm. Uh, we actually met at UCLA grad school. And she was in I was in architecture to get my master's and she was getting her master's in urban planning. Um, and um, she has her own business uh, called iStone Environmental. And she does, um, she does a lot of really big projects and she writes the environmental impact report um, and uh, that whole, whole thing. So she's quite busy actually. <laughs> I have no doubt before getting into the uh, urban bonfire world for almost seven years, I worked in, um, I worked in a, in a specialty real estate consulting and development firm that worked oh. exclusively on new urbanist mixed use projects around North America. Um, so working with uh, firms, I guess, like your wife, uh, yeah. like your wife's would have been pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, she is. She's the, I mean, it's impressive the projects that she's working on. It's like all the major ones in Hollywood and downtown and, um, you know, she's in the big, the, you know, the pile of the big fish. <laughs> and so, you know, she sees a lot of that. Uh, so our scales are like completely opposite. <laughs> I, 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 I imagine. So, so many things that I want to talk to you about today from, from uh, how you started to uh, what you've done with your firm, uh, the, the obvious focus in restaurant and hospitality and just going through your website projects that look really, really fun to be involved in. But before I do that, can we take a few minutes and I would just love to hear a little bit about your story, where you grew up, family, education, your firm, just... Okay, great, great. All right. So, um, you know, originally from Florida, um, uh, my mother actually is from Colombia, South America, and moved to, uh, immigrated when she was 22. Um, and then, um, you know, we grew up a large family. Um, and I, uh, I've always wanted to be an architect. I mean, it was, I was always like the one, you know, working with my dad, rebuilding our car, the engines. And I love the way how things went together. And, and, uh, 
So um, you know, I went to University of Florida undergraduate school and um, uh, got a degree in architecture there. And then I decided that I wanted, I wanted to get my master's because I, to be able to practice, you needed a, uh, that degree. And um, so I decided to, that, I, that uh, if I was gonna work on real architecture, I needed to be somewhere other than Florida. Uh, so I decided to move to Boston. And I figured, uh, you know, I wanted to go to Harvard. That was my dream. <laughs> um, so I figured if I went to Boston, at least I was like you know, a little bit closer there. So uh, I worked for a big firm called Jung Brannan um, and we worked on high rises. Um, you know, it's, it, it's funny when I equate what I'm doing now to the beginning of my career, I was working on high rises, working on all the public spaces. That was the team that I was on. And so, um, uh, that was always the fun stuff, you know? <laughs> and so I, I, I sent, uh, figured out a way to kind of uh, get in, doing that. A lot of it was because I, I did a lot of renderings, so hand renderings and presentations. And, you know, I always found that the person who does a presentation is the guy, who, the last guy who gets a word on what the design is going to be because they're doing the actual drawing that's going to be. So I always kind of felt that that was, uh, that was really, um, that was really, you know, part of, of, uh, of my, ambition to want to like be the creative guy you know and out of curiosity was your love for and i read again in in, in doing my research your love of uh, i believe crew and sculling was that prior to moving to boston which is notoriously known for or was that a, a result well, of being in boston yeah it actually originated in boston i i rode um on the charles river uh, out of the uh, bu boathouse uh, a, a club team. It wasn't part of the university, but it was part of the thing. And, you know, we'd, I'd get up early in the morning, ride my bike uh, on the Esplanade down to um, to the BU Boathouse on the other side of the river. And, you know, something about waking up in the morning and, and seeing the skyline of Boston with, you know, the shining dome of, of uh, the capital, state capital and the sun rising up above it. It was just so inspiring, you know. It was just like, you know, and it's like it was, you know, really got me into a, a place where, um, you know, you kind of, you see the, the, the sun rippling off the water and it's almost magical, you know, and you can put yourself in a trance. And it's, I have since, you know, been making that part of my morning routine. Um, yeah. When I came out to LA, uh, I went to UCLA. Well, I, I uh, decided to uh, apply to UCLA and Harvard and a couple of other schools. So, Needless to say, I didn't get into Harvard, but I did get into UCLA. Um, and um, so I came out here and, um, and then I, uh, when I was going through school, I, I realized they had a, pro had a program. And, and so I um, started rowing, uh, rowing out of the boathouse um, like in my, in, at, during grad school. And it's been something that I've been, you know, I'm on my 25th year of, <laughs> of rowing every morning in the boathouse. And it's really part of my whole, like, you know, how I start my day. Of course, COVID has kind of really messed things up. So I haven't been able to go on the water because, uh, because it's part of, the boathouse is part of UCLA and all the campus right. stuff. But, um, but yeah, but, you know, coming out to California was, uh, was my ultimate dream, you know, even though I, I wanted to be in Boston, I loved Boston. It was such a great experience. and. Um, and when I came out here, I, I decided that I would, um, that I would take a year off and, uh, I realized I'd get my state, you know, 
residency and get cheaper tuition if I had was I here for a year. So I, I worked for a firm called RTKL, um, who they do a lot of um, big built big retail spaces and um, and you know with my experience on working on high rises, they were doing some high rises in Chinatown and. Um, but then I kind of got disillusioned by the whole large scale architecture projects. You know, the, the one I did in Boston, I worked on for two and a half years. And, and when I left, they were just starting construction. So I never really got to see it being, you know, I'd make some trips going back, but I never really got to see it, um, you know, come to life in front of me. And, and the same with um, RTKL, we were doing very large retail space, retail uh, buildings and, and we'd move on to the next project, you know, and, and do the design and so on else. So I, um, I had friends of mine who were architects here in LA and this is, you know, the, um, this is the late eighties and, you know, the restaurant, the restaurant industry was really starting to grow and somebody convinced me to go work for a boutique firm called Grinstein Daniels. And they did a lot of restaurants, you know, really hip, cool restaurants, and of course, you know, I'm in my late 20s and, you know, nothing better than to be associated with the new openings of restaurants. And, um, sure. and the other thing, too, it had a, had a, a much a, a quicker turnover, you know. So, we're, you know, it was, it was a year, maybe a year and a half from the conception to opening day. And, and uh, there was, you know, uh, so you got to see things and you got to work more hand in hand with artisans and, uh, fabricators and you know that whole kind of figuring things out kind of goes back to my roots of you know putting engines back together with my dad you know right. that um, you, know, you figure figure out how to do that and that has been you know my really big I, I you know you know I, I do this I always say I'm so fortunate that I do what I love you know that this is this is what I would do if I was retired you know it's like just to be able to keep thinking forward and and, um, and so um, when I was, uh, when I was uh, uh, move, moving along, the recession hit and I uh, yeah. finished off my, uh, my last year at UCLA. And um, it was, I mean, it was really bad in 1992. There's no work yeah. here at all. Uh, a friend of mine that was my roommate in college um, called me up. And he was in Florida and said, hey, he was a contract. He was, he was in business I mean, uh, construction administration and got his license and contract. And he's like, you know, you got to come out to Florida. Hurricane Andrew just came through and there's so much work that he had um, and I need your help. So, you know, within a couple of weeks, I packed up, subleased my project. My, um, my, my now wife was my girlfriend at the time. And I, you know, we both finished college and um, so I went, went to, to do that and we rebuilt homes after Hurricane Andrew, which was another kind of learning experience about, you know, what architecture is and how, you know, what the role is of an architect to the builders. You know, you're supposed to give instructions of how to do things. And when you're in a position where you're, you know, being sent to Home Depot to pick up some doors and you don't know if they're left swing or right swing doors because you don't have a plan, you know, because it wasn't on the plans. Those are things that, you know, that are crucial to, for, um, for the builders to know and what the job is of the architect to be able to, you know, fully do. So that kind of understanding, you know, deeper understanding of how you communicate design ideas and put it on drawings to, to, uh, to the workers um, really was a, a good sense of, of, um, 
of uh, realization. Um, before I before that, and while I was in college, I actually, uh, when I was at UCLA, I uh, decided that I wanted to uh, travel abroad, and I wanted to. Um, uh, there was a program through the University of Washington that was studying Italian hill towns, and um, I felt you know, and so this friend of mine who was attended that the course over the summer. Uh, came back with photos and it was just amazing. It was just like, you know, you lived, he was living in this little Italian hill town um, between Florence and, and Rome and um, in a little city called Civita de Bagnareggio. And, um, and so I was so intrigued by that. I, I'm like, well, I need to, I want to do that program. So between my first and second year at uh, of grad school, I applied to, to the program and I got accepted. And, um, and I went out uh, at the beginning of the summer. Before I left, I started thinking, you know, I, I kind of did the math and I realized that the program's over and I had to be, had a week to get back to, um, to, to LA to finish up my, you know, my, uh, my, my classes. And then I'm like, you know, what a, you know, what a shame. I'm going to be all the way over there. I don't even get to visit anywhere other than my classes and come over. And I, so then I said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to try to, um, try to stay longer and I'm, I'm going to try to uh, get a job and, and stay there. So um, I speak Spanish fluently. Um, so I figured, well, Spain would be where I should be going. Um, and it happened to be, I worked for uh, my boss at the time had um, connections with Ricardo Bofield. He used to work for Ricardo Bofield in Barcelona and was good friends with one of the principals. So, you know, I faxed over samples of my renderings and uh, literally got a job <laughs> over the fax machine. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, they, they got all my paperwork uh, ready and everything. And so, so, you know, so I went to Barcelona, I went to, to Italy. Uh, I did the program uh, over the summer, just the most amazing experience. Um, and then after that, I traveled a month before, you know, they, they closed down August, you know, so I traveled yeah. a month around, around Europe with my sketchbook and my watercolor paintings. And I did all of these, you know, I have this amazing uh, sketchbook that I, I did of, of all my travels and kind of a, a, a logging of that. And then, um, and then I ended up in Barcelona and then I, fit, I worked there that whole year. Uh, this is 1992. So this is right before the Olympics. Right. Uh, and so this Barcelona was just like coming alive and it was just amazing. I mean, after years of, you know, Franco and a whole generation of, uh, of, of people that are growing up, you know, not under a Franco dictatorship, uh, the creativity was just amazing. And, and the restaurants that were opening up, I mean, it was just, it was really eye-opening. I wasn't expecting, yeah. expecting that to be, and to be also at the forefronts of uh, the new, you know, the new um, uh, stadiums and, you know, I was working on some of the stuff for Barcelona. It was just like really exciting time, kind of, kind of like my Boston time, you know, where it was kind of like that. And surrounded by Gaudi and architecture, I mean, Barcelona, I mean, there's nothing, it's like, it's like Disneyland if you look yeah. at architecture and design. I mean, it's just, it's, it, yeah. You it was, can, even if you don't, even if you don't understand architecture principles, history, uh, visionaries to be in Barcelona you can't help but absorb it. It's just, it's so, it's so interwoven into every aspect of, of it as, as a city. It is. It was, it was an amazing experience. Um, and so then I, you know, I, 
I had to go back to finish my last year. Of course, the people at Bowfield were like, oh, you know, you're, you know, you're crazy. You know, you have it so good here. Cause I did have it really good. <laughs> um, and then um, I said, well, no, I, I want to finish and I'll be right back, you know? So, um, so then uh, I, I, uh, I left, before I left, I actually traveled two months and I did a really big loop um, around Spain, all the way down to Turkey and uh, what was Yugoslavia and up to the Baltics. And, and then I just continued sketching and I've got I said, I, over 150 watercolor paintings that I did. I would just go to, a, you know, a, a, like somewhere, like, I remember being in Paris and uh, being uh, standing there and I, I had my little fanny pack that I have my, my, my paints in and my water bottle and my, you know, and my brushes and my bring out, you know, bring out my, wa my watercolor block, put on my headphones and just kind of get into another world. And before I know it, you know, I'm looking around and there's like a crowd of people watching me paint, you know, and I was like, wow, you've, you've, I've become from being, you know, a tourist to be part of the attraction, you know, <laughs> and it was, uh, it was kind of, you know, it was a, it was a really fun way to experience another country. And, and each one of those paintings just have so much meaning to me because I can, I can imagine when I was painting them, you know, the mood I was in, the people I was around, the weather, what I was looking at, you know, studying the details of the Pompidou or, you know, whatever, whatever the subject matter was. But, um, but then, so I, I came back uh, and then I, I finished my last year um, and that's when I met my wife, Stephanie. Um, and, um, and, then, I, and then after that, that's whenever you know, I graduated, I'm like, I called up my, my uh, contacts in Barcelona. And the Olympics had just gone by. The economy was, was folding in Spain. Uh, they were laying people off. I didn't have enough money to get back anyway. And, you know, I was dating uh, Stephanie. So, you know, kind of things change, you know, and, and, um, and you, uh, just like when I was in Boston, I, I, I thought I was going to be going to Harvard. I was kind of like premeditated uh, kind of scenario, but then something completely different happens. So the same thing happened, you know, something different happens. Opportunities raise themselves. Um, you know, going to Miami, although it was, you know, going from one extreme to another, I was, you know, living the high life in Barcelona. And then the next year I'm living in a, you know, living in a portion in a house that we're remodeling in the front end with 12 other construction guys and, you know, the, the uh, national guard making sure that nobody's going around uh, looting or anything, you know, so it was quite a contrast and, and, you know, some, some, uh, times where I was, you know, the only one there and just kind of like, oh my God, what am I doing here? <laughs> you know? But, but, you know, I came back to, um, came back to LA um, and then um, got a job working, um, doing, doing uh, uh, a uh, co-generation plant actually in, in, for an architectural firm. But I got, you know, uh, when I came back, I, one of the people I used to work with, one actually the person who, um, who brought me into the, this boutique uh, firm contacted me again and said, you know, um, you know we, uh, I'm working for Wolfgang Puck um, and we're like, uh, and they are growing the company and they are, um, they wanna uh, expand um, a new uh, fast, uh, you know, mid-level 
restaurant chain called Wolfgang Puck Cafe. And, you know, why don't you come work for us? So I was like, um, you know, at the time I'm thinking, well, I'm an architect. I'm not going to work for a restaurant company. You know, I wanted, you know, I wanted to work for a big prestigious architectural firm, but my wife was working uh, on a big project in uh, Playa Vista and she wanted to finish it up. So I decided to take the job as kind of like a, a filler job. Um, and um, so I, I was, I was amongst three other people that started the architecture department at the Wolfgang Puck cafes doing um, the, the new concept rollout. But um, so as I was working with them, I started kind of realizing more of, you know, potential of reaching my dream, which was to have my own business. And um, I, you know, I had really gained the respect of both Wolfgang and his wife at the time, uh, Barbara Lazaroff. And, um, and, you know, and I felt that, you know, this could be, you know, a way for me to be able to, um, to, uh, to start my own business. And, you know, maybe I could do some of the overflow work that they couldn't handle in-house or something like this. Um, and then in 95, um, uh, Wolfgang and Barbara decided to close down Spago in, in, uh, on Sunset and move it to a new location in Beverly Hills on Cannon. And so um, they wanted me to do the restaurant, but technically I was an employee of the food companies and the restaurant was a group of private investors. Uh, so I wasn't technically supposed to be working on that project. Um, so I quit and I started my business and, um, this, I, it was even before I actually was got the commission, but I had a good, you know, feeling I was going to get it. So, um, so I got, uh, Spago and Beverly Hills as my first commission as SF Jones architects, which. What a, what a first one. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I want to come back to something really interesting. You, you've mentioned and you've interwoven through your story a lot about travel and how that has really impacted you. And it got me to think very much the same for me and how when we're young and we're experiencing the world, travel may, we may not be able to connect the dots moving forward that this trip to, uh, to, to, to Italy and then to Barcelona and into Paris, for example, and other places, how they are going to impact us down the road. But we're taking on even in our conscious or, or in many ways, I think in our, in our subconscious, we're taking on experiences that will inform decisions, uh, design things that we will be inspired by later on. So one of the things I want to ask you about um, is first of all, I want to hear a little bit about your time in, in Bogota, which I understand is an incredibly uh, European-styled city. And the other thing, because you mentioned Paris specifically, I was interested to know, have you visited Montreal in any of your travel at this point? And if you have, I would, w- uh, which is an architecturally exquisite yeah. city. Yeah. I'd love to hear about travel for you. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, travel definitely... Um, it forms the basis of a lot of what, what you think. I, I constantly go back to my memory, you know, my library of memories of spaces and how I felt in it, you know. And, and when you draw, you know, when you do a sketchbook, you're, you're always looking at proportions, you know. You have to figure out, you know, this is this wide by this high and, and that kind of like forms, you know, the space. And so you have, you, you know, 
I think there's a lot of experience, a lot of, uh, of that, that you, that um, just by visiting and drawing it, uh, that you really are able to carry through in your work and, and, and do that. You know, um, I haven't been to Montreal. It's one of the places I really would like to go. I've been to Toronto um, and, um, uh, you know, it's, it's on the list. I've been, you know, uh, when I lived in, in Colombia, uh, it was uh, when I was, when I was, uh, uh, when I was young, when I was like, um, I think it's 12 years old. And I, my mother and my aunt, uh, we, she had a child that had a heart problem and had to live in lower, lower elevation and Bogota is up in the mountains. Uh, so we switched kids for a year. And so I went to Colombia, lived with my aunt and uncle uh, and my cousins and went to a, uh, a school over there, which, you know, when you're 12 years old and all of a sudden you're not just, not only not with your parents, you know, but in another culture, in another school where everything is completely, you know, new and different. And Barcelona, I mean, Bogota was such a, you know, a metropolitan place um, back then. I mean, even now I've been back, you know, I go back a few times and visit my, I have a lot of family up there. And then, you know, the, what they're doing with the, with the transportation system and their whole, um, their whole, like, as you mentioned, you know, kind of more of a European kind of, of, a, of a sense of culture um, is just really, uh, it's really intriguing. And it's really, I'm so proud to have that as part of my heritage, you know, that, that, um, that uh, I, I feel like I can, there's one more dimension to who I am, you know, in terms of, uh, of, of that. You mentioned that it's interesting. If you, I don't know if you know the name Ray Gindros. If that name rings a bell, one of the pioneers in new urbanist philosophy planning, and I think very much like you, uh, loved to sketch and draw in 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 places that were meaningful to him. And I remember we're going back about uh, more than ten years now. When I was involved in in new urbanist real estate, we would have these really interesting conferences here in Montreal because. Uh, Montreal is a modern city, but still has, like others, a very old part of it. Like old Montreal is a district that is still cobblestone, that is still original uh, infrastructure to the, to the late 1700s. I mean, to give you a sense of how old the infrastructure is, about 10 years ago, they replaced the water mains and the massive water mains were still wood. If he goes back, how how old these things are. And he would sit and one of the guests and he would sit quietly and he would sketch. And one of the things that he pointed out to me, which I found interesting, is he said, look at the difference between classic French or Parisian European architecture. Look at this street. You can't see the end. It is intentionally designed with curve, so it does not have a limiting view. It doesn't have a start and an end to the person exploring it versus more British or traditional Toronto, New York, more linear sort of streets and avenues that are very straight. And it is remarkable to me as a non-architect, non-traditionally educated in anything to do with this, this area of specialty, how that micro nuance has changed the way I look at streets when I travel for the rest of my life. Yeah, no, you know what, it's, it's the, it's an element of, you know, of uh, a surprise or not knowing what you're going to, like, there was an example of like how you would situate a house on a lake. If you had any, 
any place on the lake that you can put it on. You know, if you put it on the position where you can see the full lake, you know, that wouldn't be as desirable if you then if you put it on the way where there was a little part of the lake that you didn't see and you can just imagine it just goes on forever, you know. Um, but that, you know, those kind of little subtleties can be taken into big scales like position on a lake, but also on smaller scales. When I, when I design my restaurants, I always think about how to create not just a, you know, a theme, a, a design, but how do I create little other spaces within spaces that you could have like different experience in, you know? And I would say that if you went to like one of my restaurants and you were able to go there two or three times and have a different experience each time you went there, just where you got sat inside of the space, then I think about those kind of uh, things, you know, the same to your analogy of the street that turns a corner that you don't know, you know, you don't know what's on the other side because you kind of you get to explore it and you get to. Um, so, yeah, I, I really. Well, and that is an excellent segue into what I want to talk to you about rest, which is a focus on your restaurants. And I, I want to say first that I can't think of a of a project typology where design is more critical in the overall experience than in restaurants. And I acknowledge the brilliance of architecture and design that goes into office buildings and goes into other types of, of, of projects, but there is something that is so innately critical in food and beverage and as it relates to the guest experience. And I want to share with you an anecdote or a story that I think is going to be really interesting. Mm-hmm. I grew up with, you know, if you asked me when I was six or seven years old, I told, I would have told you I want to own a restaurant. I just love the idea of the whole experience. And I ended up being involved in restaurants sort of down, down the road in, in, in part of my entrepreneurial uh, history and life. But one thing I've always done from when I started traveling at 17 through the Middle East, then living in Africa through Europe, I've traveled extensively. And whenever I am moved in an experience of a restaurant, I take note of it. You know, back in the day when smoking was allowed, we would get matchbooks that had the logo or a menu or before we had iPhones and we're snapping pictures of everything. And over the years, I've collected, I don't know, let's call it 30 or 40 menus of places where I had an experience that was just all-encompassingly awesome from aesthetic to how I felt to noticing chair to lighting to the food and I take the menu with me Mm -hmm. and I took a menu out of a restaurant on January 24th 2012 Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) now what an incredible segue into my research before today's conversation to find out that this is one, what an incredible story to have that this experience that I had with one of my oldest and best friends in the world who happens to live in Manhattan Beach and took me oh, there, but that's... that it resonated enough that I took this eight years ago oh, for meeting you today and you designed this. So what a segue into the conversation on restaurant. Well, I tell you, an MB post is kind of like, um, you know, one of the things as an architect that you, you know, your dream is to design and build your own house, right? And you're sitting in my house that I designed and built. Um, uh, and, you know, that's, you know, such a, such a great thing. Your next favorite thing to do would be to design a restaurant in your own community, 
you know, and I got, I was afforded the opportunity to be able to do that with a great uh, um, group of restaurateurs, uh, Mike and Chris Sims and, and chef David LeFevre, who were just like, you know, we're really a great group of people. And, you know, most of my good projects come from that, you know, that just a visionary um, uh, owner who, who is who wants to take it to the next level and and on, on MB Post they basically told me said look we want this to feel like your hometown and you really want people to be comfortable well first of all it was in the old post office in downtown Manhattan Beach that had since been moved to another location but um, uh, it had been a number of restaurants in a, in a few times and I started thinking wow what a what a I mean what a great that's the, the most social place in a in a in a city used to be the post office. Everybody went there to pick up your mail and that's where you sure. get. So, so it was I'm always like, at the, always in right in the center of town. It was the central gathering place right. for a community. Right. And so, um, so I started, th- so, um, you know, when we were coming up for a name for the place, you know, we kind of, the post office and then MB post and Manhattan beach post. And so that's where the name kind of came from post, uh, being the post office. And, and then I started thinking about, um, well, I live in Manhattan Beach. So, um, you know, what do people do in Manhattan Beach? Well, one of the things we do a lot of is play volleyball. You know, uh, we go to the beach all the time. And, and the volleyball posts um, along, the, along the coast, you know, people play in the same spots all the time. They paint the poles to kind of give it some personality. And, and, and so if you are a local and you, you know, ride up and ride your bike up and down the strand, you know, you could recognize them, some of these posts. So the initial concept was to be able to, um, to uh, kind of recreate some of the environment into the space. The other thing that you, there's a lot of is lifeguard stands. And um, on the lifeguard stands, they have uh, the painted on a blue, blue stands, the number of the street that it's on. So if it's on fourth street, it's a four with a TH or it's on uh, Rosecrans, it's abbreviated the same way. Anyway, so one day I, my daughter and I, we started from one end of the strand all the way down and we took pictures of all the lifeguard stands and all the po- volleyball posts. And then, um, so when we did the design, I, uh, I wanted to have this aesthetic of like, it's been there a long time. Uh, it was, I was kind of reimagining what the post office might've been like, although I didn't have any pictures or anything. And then, so I used uh, reclaimed wood, which in 2011 was not very, you know, was very innovative. Now it's like, you know, pretty much everywhere. But then within the wood post, within the, the wood cladding using the reclaimed wood, I would have, boards that I had an artist paint with the exact same marking of that was on the lifeguard stand in the same kind of like if it was you know faded you know in portion so it looked like exactly the the same number so that if you were a local and you went to the beach and you you would recognize that subliminally you would say you know this is tied in with the with the community in the beat in the the bar I used all of these um I had a, an artist replicate the 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 poles from the light from the volleyball courts and then had those kind of also mixed. I even took one of the posts from the beach and actually planted it in there. But, you know, that's a, that's a, another level of a detail and of meaning that, you know, most people don't know until I point out to them, you know, when they, you know, 
And, um, but, you know, Manhattan, uh, MB Post really had, um, you know, it was really about, you know, we had the communal tables that we lit in a certain way so that it really, you know, spotlighted the food and we had a center portion of the, the piece that was raised up so the food would be, you know, easier for people to share with and, and presented in a nice, so all these little details just go into, um, into the creation of these, uh, of these restaurant spaces. And the restaurants, you know, they're, they are, um, I, I kind of equate them to, you know, what it must be like to design, a, you know, a Ferrari or a sports car. And the fact that, you know, you have to have, you know, a really big engine, <laughs> you know, that is top performing, you know, the kitchen is a big engine in it and it fits in a sexy body, you know, that, that looks like this and it has to go 125 miles an hour all the time, you know? So it's just, you know, it's that kind of, you know, it's a machine almost, you know, but it's, has two aspects of it. it has the mechanic aspect of it and it has the the um the, the, the customer feels and the ambiance and the, the, the what i just mentioned to you about creating the connection with the community um and so you know i've always been you know since my early days intrigued with restaurants just because they have their own kind of built-in publicity i mean i i'm able to like tell my you know uh, tell my people when they ask me what I do and I was like oh well you've been to Spago or Lucky Strikes or you know a lot of these things I said well that's what I do so I you know I, uh, it has this kind of a built-in um, built-in um, uh, aspect to it that you know maybe residential work you know you probably never see it after you finish building it because it's somebody's private home but um, um, to be able to do and be post in my own backyard um, and to be able to have people recognize it and to be able to go there. And, and you know, we always have my kids' birthdays. And so it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty cool. <laughs> well, I, I'd like to ask you now, it's sort of, again, it segues into something I've been very interested to, to ask you about. You know, what we are living in, and our company is, as Urban Bonfire works almost not not entirely in residential we do a little bit of commercial but it's it's 98% residential and what we are heavily involved in in is the inspiration of fusing together the relationship between indoor and outdoor and having worked with both uh, you know visionary restaurateurs who are starting mm -hmm. with a one location all right. the way up to you know things where there's as you said earlier, uh, outside investment, whether it's Wolfgang Puck and Spago, Lucky Strike Lanes. I mean, these are large corporations. I wanted to ask you through your practice and have you seen a change um, in the way that restaurateurs envision and think about their outdoor space? If you look at many restaurants and, and, and California is one of the greatest examples due to weather and, and other factors where you can really merge the indoor and outdoor sort of brilliantly. It, it seems often that the amount of time and energy and focus and investment that goes into the outdoors is completely, in, excuse me, into the indoors makes total sense. And the outdoors is often leftover space, a few heaters, some tables, misaligned. I'd love to hear from you in your experience designing restaurants. Has it always been an important factor? Is it changing? Are the requests from the restaurant owners uh, changing as it relates to outdoor space design and, and trying to create more uh, identity and more alignment between the two. How does that play into your current 
process well, and practice? That's a really interesting question. And, um, and at least, you know, I'm getting a lot, ton of thoughts just thinking about just while you're asking me the question and things that, and, you know, I tell you that it's always, you know, the outdoors has always been the bonus space, you know, that, you know, you basically, you, you design a restaurant so that your interior seats is going to be what you need to make money. If you can get outside space and the landlord is going to be able to, you know, let you have it for free or something like that. That's just a bonus. That's a very plus. And so, you know, there's always been that, you know, uh, that kind of feeling from a owner's side to, you know, let's take advantage of the patio when we can and let's design it uh, so that we can. There's one big drawback um, that, the, that, uh, that we have, and that is the health code laws in, in California. And, and, uh, so there's, they're very strict about um, being able to uh, separate out where the food prepar preparation is from, from the outside. So that kind of line between inside and outside, um, uh, you know, when you, have a set of, when you have a set of doors that open to the outside, they have to be on closers so that, you know, it always closes up. So, you know, a lot of times what we want to do, and, and one, of my, one of my clients, Simsies, um, that the whole concept was the whole thing open to the outside into a patio that looked out to the ocean and, you know, had this whole connection. So what you have to do is then you have to like separate the kitchen from the dining space, you know, and a lot of times that's contradictory to what a chef wants to do. They want to be on show, you know, they want to be, you know, seeing everything like this. They don't want a piece of glass in front of them, but the codes kind of are written so that you have to do it. So there's, there's always, there's always that kind of, uh, how do you make that balance, you know, and, and how do you design so that you can meet co uh, health department codes and have things open up? Although I believe with what's happening now with the alfresco seating and everybody kind of seeing how that, how uh, nice that is to, to happen that, you know, possibly cities are gonna start to, um, to, you know, think more in terms of, you know, maybe we don't need parking spaces every single place over here, maybe, some outside seating and, and can really add life to the city. And that's much more valuable than, than three parking spots, you know? Yeah. Um, and then maybe the health departments are gonna be a little, you know, start thinking a little bit more about, you know, there's other ways to be able to mitigate, you know, uh, mitigate their, what they call the fly rule, which a fly can't fly into other parts of the space or just ease up a little bit on it. I mean, people have been cooking that way for, you know, for, you know, for throughout mankind, you know? And so why is it that we are at a point where it's so restrictive that that becomes- you look at, If you look at cities and, you know, as you mentioned, Tuscany, Barcelona, these are, you know, the, the, the vast majority of the activation of the space where people truly enjoy restaurants is, is often outdoors, whether yeah. it's courtyard, patio, back, there seems to be a little bit, and Montreal as well, well, you know, a little bit less, um, a little bit less stringent on the re restrictions and health codes and that type of thing. A little bit more in favor of the r romantic nature of we eat outside. Yeah, we might get a fly and we might, but the overall experience of what it does, it's trumps. You know what I mean? Exactly right. I mean, that's where, you, where it's, you know, you, you just have to get, um, you have to work through some cultural things and, you know, I always say that the, the, the building department and whenever you get your coat, your permits and everything, everybody's basically trying to cover their butts, you know, and uh, making sure that, you know, this is what it says on the law. This is how I have to interpret it and how yep. I have to enforce it. Yep. And they don't think past that. They don't think about what they're destroying by, you know, doing that. But 
One of the things I have been noticing, uh, and, and in fact, I have had a few projects that, um, that uh, I'm really excited about. And I, I'm, I've really, you know, kind of, I think in the past five years, I've really turned the page on, on the type of work that I do um, based on this kind of, uh, this concept that I've been working on. I call it my Saturday concept. And Saturday, I was asked to do a project in um, South San Francisco uh, and it was amenities facilities for a, um, for a, a biotech office park in South San Francisco. Um, and it's called it, an area called Oyster Point where there's no restaurants around um, and they, um, they wanted to be able to, um, to like, create a campus-like environment for the, for the seven towers. It was a million square foot of biotech, so they all had labs and everything. And so they gave me the ground floor of one of the footprints of the, one of the buildings in the middle. And they said, we want to create an amenity space for this park. And they kind of equated it for it to be what, you know, Google does for their employees, you know, that we want to provide that kind of environment and we want to provide that extra. And so, you know, I always have a story whenever I do my projects, you know, the story I was telling you about MB Post, you know, about how the things come together. And I was, when I first started working on this, I was baffled and I was like, what's my story? You know, I'm, you know. So then I started thinking about, I was reading the LA Times, they had the Saturday section where they, they have all of the things like food and mind and body and exercise and travel and all these kind of things combined in one section of the newspaper. And I'm like, that's it, Saturday, you know. Saturday is the best day of the week. You know, Saturday is the day that you take time off to do what you need to do, to go exercise, to do your laundry, to do this. And so I kind of came up with this idea of equating Saturday, what Saturday is to the rest of the week, this amenity space is to this whole office park, you know. And so what is it that, you know, why do people like to go to, um, to work at a place where, you know, uh, they, they have those kind of amenities. Well, you know, they don't have to leave at five o'clock to go take their dry cleaning in to get dropped off. And then, you know, they have, we have dry cleaning pick up there. You know, we have, you know, on, on Wednesdays, the dentists would come and we had a little kiosk for them. You know, we had an outside seating, uh, outside area um, where um, in this particular project, it, this project, it tied in with the rest of the San Francisco Bay and a jogging trail that went across here. So we basically had that kind of connected to our space. The space and uh, had um, had a um, a main dining area. I mean, a main dining area that was very flexible, um, so that it could host different types of um, functions. And then um, it also had a, a one side that had a had a, uh, a cafe, had a gym, uh, had, even had a bowling alley <laughs> in it. But, wow. uh, but it was basically, so nobody in the area really did kind of understand, um, you know, what the amenities was until they opened up. And this was phase one that this opened up. As soon as it opened up, the, it, the, 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 they sold out and they were, they immediately decided to do phase two and phase three because of what, what it was going. But what, the point of this is just that, you know, this kind of sense of community that um, had been kind of getting lost whenever people, you know, start working at home and feeling isolated that they were, you know, you know, not part of the community that, you know, this, this, um, this, uh, this whole thing started to evolve. At the same time, I was actually, I did some projects in Kenya 
Um, and I would travel through uh, Amsterdam on my way over there. And I ran across a place in Amsterdam called uh, Spaces. And it was, this is like WeWorks, but one of the first WeWorks, you know, before WeWorks became blown up. And I was just so intrigued. I was like, wow, this is it. You know, this is the same thing. It's amenities for people. And it's a different way that people, you know, want to, want to live and want to work. And the whole, I, the whole concept of WeWorks is all based on that kind of, you know, getting out of your living room and being a part of a community. And so a lot of that is like shared spaces that you, you have to have in, a, in like WeWorks, the shared spaces um, are, you know, places to eat, dining halls and within a building. But the same thing can happen with outside spaces, you know, and outside yes. spaces can create kind of create those kind of little, just like Montreal, you know, have these parts, you know, they're just, you know, just gems with gems of spaces within a, a, an urban fabric. And yes. so, so I started thinking um, that um, you know, this could actually, you know, these amenity spaces works great for office spaces. Um, yeah. And I was asked by a, a developer in California called CenterCal, and they were doing a development, uh, re a, a retail development. And so the retail industry, it's also going through a big transformation. You know, the big boxes sure. are closing down. These big developers are kind of wondering what, you know, how, how am I going to draw people to my community? Um, you know, what's replacing that? And, and, the, and the other tenants in there are going to their, to their landlords and saying, hey, you know, you got to do something, you know. So, um, so I was asked to, um, to create an amenity space for, an, for a big office park. A big not office park, a retail center. So it was your typical, you know, big parking lot in the middle, surrounded by big boxes, uh, movie theater with the five to five thousand square foot restaurants. But in the corner was an amenity, was our amenity space, which was consisted of six tiny restaurants. So, hmm. um, so I've been thinking about this idea of tiny restaurants, of how you know how to make it smaller and smaller and smaller. To the yeah. point that the restaurant is really only the kitchen. It's only like the engine, right? Mm -hmm. And the engine, imagine all these little, little kitchens serving a public space. That's yes. all of the seating is communal. So, you know, so the, so the restaurateurs basically have their, their, um, their, their small footprint and people go mm -hmm. and buy and then they go and sit and they sit in a nice environment. You know, we spent... You know, a lot of money with this fountain. And as we have this big lawn that in the wintertime is an ice skating rink in the summertime, it's, you know, concerts on the lawn and, and, um, you know, playgrounds. And so it's like all of these, you know, amenities. Like the, like the classic European food hall experience where it's, you know, it, and we saw, it's so funny you mentioned this because Montreal, the average size of restaurant in Montreal, again, being very European is, just sub 40 seats. Uh -huh. Very yeah. different in terms of scale than most major US cities. Right. And we've seen this influx of these food hall concepts where it's these are not food courts with with chains and franchises and that sort of, you know, McDonald's, KFC. It's really best of best restaurateurs right. creating specialized micro concepts and bringing this whole, elevating the entire uh, right. gastronomical experience Right. In that community way. Yeah. You know, and, and the thing that was so exciting about this project um, that I was talking to you about is that they focused on the people that there were going to be in these six units. 
as being, you know, local people. I mean, because, you know, the restaurants, you pretty much had the restaurants so expensive to build, you know, unless you're a well-funded business, you know, they're not, they're not for the faint of heart, you know, but these six restaurants, we wanted to make sure that we got local mom and pops in there. We got people who've been in food trucks has never been in a, in, in a brick and mortar before. And my job was to basically be able to help these people who've never, first of all, never done a restaurant, but never done a restaurant in such tiny space. So I had to, you know, put together this, you know, little engine of all the components that the health department needs. You know, you need to have your three compartment sink and all those things to be legal. Um, but then make it in such that um, so that they, you know, it opens up to outside spaces. We did one of the spaces was a, was a wine bar that was literally a big, long bar and it all opened up to outside seating. And then it was a coffee shop and then a, a pokey bar and then a, 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 a well, Korean roll. And if you can it, keep it. If you can keep them small and you can, you know, design in shared back of house, which is often a huge amount of the cost, you don't have to do that times six and shared dining. I mean, that is the way to, I think, yeah. on an economics level, make it something that's viable for the restaurateur. Yeah. And and so the, the other key thing was the way it was. And I thought this was very clever of the way that the developer went about this. And they basically they paid for the build out of all of these units. Right. Wow. So they structured their deal with them differently than a regular restaurateur that, you know, you pay rent of this. It was basically they were partners into this thing. So so um, the developers paid for the build out. They paid for my fee. They paid for all the outside seating. The, the restaurateurs only was responsible for the kitchen equipment and any furniture, anything you can plug in or or take out with it. So then their point of entry, instead of being 2.5 million, it was more like 250,000, you know, and it was much more of a bite size. And then that afforded the, the, the locals, to, local mom and pops to be able to be in that. And then, you know, amongst the other restaurateurs, you know, you had to basically, you know, you're signing into this thing, you need to perform, you know, and mm-hmm. so, um, and they would do is put these people on shorter leases so that, you know, if there was one of the entities that wasn't performing like the rest of them, because you fed off of everybody performing, then that person can leave and be replaced mm-hmm. by someone who did. So then all of a sudden the culture of being amongst this group of, of six uh, restaurants became such that, you know, people wanted to be in that little tight. Well, it, it, it goes from the traditional real estate model of get a broker and chase, 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 who can get, get who can I get to sign a lease? Versus make it more of almost in a casting and audition process where each one of those specialty restaurateurs needs to come in and really own it and create their their. So the whole thing uh, elevates. It, it, it makes total yeah. sense. So I see, you know, so I see that as kind of, you know, the trends that's going going this way and and the restaurant business, you know, and this whole COVID thing uh, is really going to shake out a lot of stuff. I mean, I, you know, I think that. Uh, the industry has been, you know, oversaturated for many years, and um, it's the same group of people chasing the same dollar, you know. And um, you know, unfortunately, the strong survive, and and but there's also opportunity that's you know, that that happens because of it. And so, um, just the same kind of idea of the of the of the community of six restaurants that they all have to have to um, perform to make it better. I think it's this 
it's kind of, it's a shakeup that's going to make that happen. And then I think too that people are going to be having different different feelings about how uh, they experience a restaurant. You know, being uh, more outside, more communal, uh, more like you know the amenity space that I was talking to, the, the examples that I'm talking to you about, and then um, and how how that is. Um, uh, transforming the restaurant industry and society in general. I mean, we're realizing how much COVID has affected the restaurants and how much of a cultural blow that is to all of us, you know, that is, we can't, we can't interact with our friends. And I mean, I'm sure in Montreal, you must be getting pretty cold now. So, um, you know, we're fortunate enough to still be able to out, eat outside here. But, you know, these people, these periods of people having to, um, you know, still make it work. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's, I'm, I'm really worried about, uh, about the, the, about the immediate future of restaurants. Um, but I'm very excited about the prospects of what might come out of the other end of this. You know, I, I think that, um, I'm, all, I'm very much of an optimist, you know, thinking that there's a reason for everything. Uh, and That's just my- you're, just because you're put under certain kind of circumstances that you believe that it's, you know, how in the world can this be happening? You know, why, you know, when I thought, when I didn't get into Harvard and I was like, you know, that was the end of the world for me, but you know, all these other opportunities came up and it became much better than I could ever imagine that it would be, you know? So, so I think that, um, I think that, you know, that, that there's a lot to be gained um, there's a lot of uh, people's attitudes, I think, that are going to be are change are going to change. I mean, the, the fact that we're doing this Zoom call here. I mean, I've been doing Zoom, you know, go to meetings in these kind of calls for years. Um, but you know, now everybody has got exposed to it from the you know five year old in kindergarten yep. class to this, and it's going to be a new norm. You know, that we're going to be uh, used to doing. I've, I've been working out of my house. Um, and, uh, you know, I've had, I have my office that I, I had just moved in literally two weeks before the shutdown. Wow. I haven't even been able to go in there because, uh, because of COVID and I, I don't really, you know, we, my whole staff, we're all working remotely and kind of seamlessly still able to, to do what we have. And I'm, I go back to my office and I'm like thinking, what do I have this office for? You know, it's, mm-hmm. I just go in there to water the plants and to check the mail, you know, I, I turned off my internet because there's nobody there and might, might as well not spend that amount of money doing that. Um, uh, and uh, so, I hear you. You know, we've got a 4,000 square foot, beautiful showroom. And today I'm the only person here. <laughs> our entire, our entire team is working remotely and you're right. It's, it's absolutely the new normal. That's just the way it's, I think we're going to evolve. And, but, but I do think one of the things you mentioned a few minutes ago, which is that I think that, well, you're right. I think restaurants, like so many other businesses, are going to feel a real short-term hurt, and and sadly, some some won't won't survive this. I also believe that the restaurant experience and what it means to people on a local community level, in the way you described it, I think is so fundamentally important to the way we socialize and what we do. And it's one of the few things that cannot be replaced with technology or Amazon, or it's just, it's, it's so it's innate. It it is something that is just woven into us. So I think it's going to come back and I think it's going to come back strong with new and interesting concepts like the ones that you are, are describing these 
food hall specialty, local mom and pop. I just think we are trending towards that style of authentic experience seeking on on eating on 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 everything. I, I think we are we're poised for that as a society. Yeah. So I mean, that's something to be you know feel good about. You know, and uh, I agree. You know, I think you know you take it. Sometimes it takes a major jolt. You know, like that. It does. To happen. That's Otherwise, we would all continue going on the same path, and 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 um, well, you know, the variety of life would be a little bit different. Right? When when things reopen and we're able to travel again, California is at the very top of my list, not only for work but also to see see my dear friend. I would love to uh, get together with you uh, when I come. I, I don't know if we can break bread, but what I would love to do is maybe break uh, bacon cheddar buttermilk biscuits <laughs> at the MB Post, which was if you remember, from 2012, so still something that I remembered. So maybe we could uh, meet up and, and share that experience. I'd love to uh, get yeah. a tour from you and how how you envisioned it and brought all those elements that. Uh, that hit me as a as a as a simple Wednesday night diner eight years ago, so much so that I saved the menu and remembered it. Oh, that's cool. That's very cool. That's very cool. Well, you know, and and the same thing. I would I can't I, I now I have one more reason to go to Montreal. <laughs> I would really like I from what you have described, I think you would absolutely love it. Yeah. Just love it. If that's ever on your plans, please. I I would be so honored to uh you know, spend a few hours with you and show you a few of the things that I've learned living in this, uh, in this city. That sounds, that sounds wonderful. I want to thank you very much for your time. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. I've enjoyed following your work and, uh, thank you. I, I, uh, uh, I, I think that our, our society and, and, and the need for people to think of restaurants and not just that they serve meals, but what they do for people's, lives and how they connect and communicate uh, so important the work that you do even okay. if the even if the diner can't articulate why the overall experience is so amazingly um informed by the overall design and flow and aesthetic of the place that they're in so thank you for the work that you do well thank you so much and I, I'm, I'm i'm glad to hear that you, know, you appreciate it and that uh, that you're able to um understand <laughs> lots of my work i wish you your wife your family continued health and safety and success and i look forward to our next discussion whether that's in montreal california or or by zoom sounds great sounds great Talk about coincidence. Who would have thought that a restaurant that I grabbed the menu in eight years ago would finally come out of my file and be part of a conversation with a famous architect? This is what I love about the Fireside Chat. It's talking to real designers, real architects, and real people about their work and how their work impacts our lives. Me as a perfect example. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with architect Stephen F. Jones hearing about his impact on restaurants and how he feels that restaurants and food are still one of the great connectors of people in our world. Thanks for joining us today. Please follow us on your podcast platform. Join our discussion on YouTube, LinkedIn, and Instagram at Urban Bonfire. We want to hear from you, your thoughts, your questions. Please feel free to write in, call in anytime. We want to hear from you. Until next time, thank you very much for listening.